All right, ladies and gentlemen, a very recording in progress. A very formal welcome to Daily Power Parsha's Peachy Parsha, which is basically Daily Power Parsha with an in-person lunch option, which someone is taking the taking advantage of and enjoying her lunch. Am I right? I am right. Excellent. All right. Here we go. Hey. Okay. Get it back on me. You used to, do you remember that you used to like sit on my lap for a couple of coffee in the morning every Sunday? You guys remember that? She was my, uh, my co-teacher for a lot of classes. Okay. So let's jump in to the Torah reading. We have a brand new Torah reading, but not only a brand new Torah reading. Not only is it a new week and a new reading, it's a brand new book. We got a whole new book of the Torah that we're starting today, which is... It feels like Passover. I know, I know, right? It's like it's all Passover. It's like all the stuff that we know from Passover, which is great because Riva's definitely not eating chametz, definitely matzah, right? Oh, oh, <laughs> so awkward. <laughs> Joking. Um, yeah, that's, what is that? It's uh, pizza panini? Yeah, that's chametz. It's okay, you can eat it. You're good. <laughs> no, she got, she got nervous. No, you're totally allowed to eat it. We're just talking about the story of Egyptian slavery and redemption. So let's jump in to the conversation. I always, I mean, this is like where the narrative really heats up. We had a lot of really great narrative in the book of, of Genesis, in the book of Bratius, I must say. But this narrative is... Pretty incredible. There's a lot that we've talked about in the past, a lot that you know on your, from your own study and experience, but I believe there's still new ideas to always bring out. Um, hold on. I just said you actually studied with his youngest daughter. Is he too? Oh, nice. Yeah. Rashi, Rashi had, I think, three daughters, and they were all big scholars. Did you know that? You did not know that. Okay, well, now you know. Boom. There you go. Okay, if you need a drink, we've got some right here. Riva, by the way, is already on winter break. She has winter break. She's out of school for the next few weeks, which means all Riva all the time. It's going to be a lot of, uh, of co-teaching, which is awesome. Your birthday is in two weeks? Nice. Uh, a few weeks. Yeah. How old are you going to be? Six. Six. Wow. Shh. Big girl. When is her birthday? When is your birthday? In two weeks. In a few weeks. Your birthday is the second day of Shvat. So I'll and tell you exactly when. The so, English? Oh, the English is. Now you expect me to remember two birthdays? Come on. Yes. <laughs> uh oh. I think you're celebrating two birthdays. Yeah, we, no, we are. We are, but now I'm and trying to. All my Israeli cousins do. This is true. Okay. I, I definitely want to make sure that I'm. Not um, falling short over here. One second. Let's see. Her English birthday is... Hold on. I'm like blanking out now. Her English birthday is January 12th. January 12th. So the English birthday is January 12th. And her Hebrew birthday this year falls out on January 4th, which is a week and a day before. Second of Shabbat is January 4th. Yeah. Yeah, so we have January 4th and January 12th. Two birthdays for you, Reeves. That's exciting. You excited? All right, good. All right, so let's... My birthday is when I get back to school, right? Your birthday is when you're back at school, yeah. Right when you're back at school, yeah. Okay. All right, let's jump in. I'm going to share my screen. Let's crack the book of Shemot open and get rocking and rolling. Torah reading for Shemot. Shemot, a.k.a. Exodus. Um, the Hebrew, just to, to let you know, the Hebrew word Shemot means names. N-A-M-E-S, like a person's name or plural names. So the book is called the Book of Names, even though in English it's called Exodus. Two complete, seemingly completely different themes. And it seems like the English name got it right. Because this book is all about, I mean, at least the first third or so, is all about Egyptian slavery and the exodus, and that kind of dominates the story, even 
the aftermath is, even the stories that come after, the journeys and whatever, it's all like post-Exodus, getting the Torah, post-Exodus, wandering, post-Exodus, you know, golden calf, whatever that is. Hey, Mark, good to see you. We got lunch, and you got your books? Yeah. Awesome. Okay, so what's the meaning behind the Jewish name, behind the Hebrew name Shmot, Shmos, names? So the commentaries say the following. What is the reason, or not what is the reason, how could the Jews have survived 210 years of exile, 210 years of slavery, 210 years of just a nation trying to eliminate their identity? It was because of three things. The Jewish people never changed their language. They always spoke their native tongue, Hebrew. The Jewish people never changed the way they dressed their clothing, their attire, and the Jewish people never changed their Hebrew names. They always kept their Hebrew names. Well, These are the three, huh? But if why did the place of somebody putting another Jewish name on the name? Oh, because Hashem can add a letter in someone's name. But, so the, the names can be modified a little bit. Can slightly, Reeve asked a great question. She said, we said that they never changed their names, then how can, we, how can we find in the Torah that somebody got an extra letter in their name, like Avram became Avraham, Sarah became Sarai, Hosea became Yoshua? Excellent question. Fist bump for the excellent question. Great. But the difference is that those were still Jewish names, and once they were in Egypt, they kept their names. They didn't become, I don't know what some Egyptian names were, um, Ramses and... I don't know. That's, that's all I got. Huh? No, I mean like Egyptian, ancient Egyptian names. They didn't get the ancient Egyptian names. They kept their Jewish names. So I think it's appropriate, and the commentators say this as well, that the book is called Names because it reminds us that what kept the Jews alive, what kept the Jews able to survive, and not just become eliminated in the majority population of the Egyptians, especially when times were very tough, was because they kept their own distinct identity. No matter what happened, they kept their names, they kept their way of dress, they kept their, their language, they kept certain things about them that, that kept them true to, to who they were. All right, so that's the, that's the name of the book, which is called the Book of Names. So it's the names, here's my point, here's the names, Shemot, that leads to the Exodus. That's the way it works. All right, back inside. Let's jump in. Well, let's jump into the reading. Torah reading for Shemot, reading 1, Exodus chapter 1, verse number 1. Here's how the book begins. In the Hebrew, by the way, it begins Ve'ele Shmos. Shmot. These are the names. So on a practical level, it's because the Torah is now listing the names of the tribes, the 12 tribes who came down to Egypt. Okay. But on a deeper level, like I said, it's because they kept their identity. And one of the, the, the manifestations of this was in not changing their names. By the way, this is a plug, I should mention, this is a plug to go by your Hebrew name. Right? Sometimes we have a Hebrew name, but we go by the American name. So this is a plug to don't forget your Hebrew name. And, and, and roll it out once in a while. It's fun. Roll it out. It's a conversation, it's a conversation starter. Right? It's, uh... Riva, what's your, what's your Hebrew name? Rivka. Rivka. That's right. That's a cool name. Okay, you good? Okay, go to the bathroom. You know where to go? Yeah. Okay, go. Is there another shelf in that bathroom? No, just, you just ripped anything. Okay, all right, let's jump back in. And these are the names. Mark, you with us? Yep. We're starting right now. Boom, buckle up. Let's go. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. Ah! B'nai Yisrael, literally sons, but maybe children of Israel. I think usually it's translated as children. I would go children. These are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. With Jacob, each man in his household came. Now, we, we know this from already like a few weeks ago when the Jewish family, when Yaakov's, Jacob's family came down to Egypt, um, when Joseph called them after he revealed his identity it, two Torah portions ago. But as we begin the book of Exodus, the Torah again kind of uh, gets the stage set for what's about to happen by just reminding us. You know, the, a new book opens, it's like, okay, flashback. Here's how we got here. It's like season two of the Bible begins with a bit of a, you know, getting up to speed. Here's what happened. So here are the names of the 12 sons, 12 tribes 
that came down to Egypt with, with Jacob, their father, Ruvain, Shimon, Levi, and Yehuda, Yisachar, Zavulon, Binyamin, Dan, Naphtali, God, and Asher, one, two, three, four, one, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. The only one, so eleven, what about twelve? So the only one that we didn't mention was Joseph. Now all those aforementioned eleven sons descended from Jacob were seventy souls. Them and their families, the whole mishpacha, their kids, whatever, they were seventy. Approximately. And Joseph, son number twelve, who was already in Egypt. So that's who we got. Those are the main characters. Jacob, his 12 sons, including Joseph, who was already in Egypt, and they obviously had families and continued to have children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, etc. This Rashi says, and these are the names of the children of Israel. He says, although we counted them by their names in their lifetime, he counted them again after their death. So although we counted, good, Rashi says, let's pull up Rashi here. Although God counted them in their lifetime by their names, it, two weeks ago we were told how they came down to Egypt and it mentioned their names. Once again they're counted here. I said like a flashback, like kind of bring us up to speed as we start season two or book two. But Rashi says a little bit different. He counted them again after their death to let us know how precious they are to him because they were likened to the stars, which he takes out from beyond the horizon and brings them by number and by name, as it says, who takes out their host by number, all of them he calls by name from the book of Isaiah. Basically, just like when somebody has something precious, like a precious stamp collection. So from time to time, you'll take it out just to look at, right? Or baseball card collection. Like, oh, right, you'll just, even though you've already looked at it, you've already counted it, you've already, you know, you know what's in there, but you take it out to look at. So too, God counts the family of Yaakov, counted them once when they came down to Egypt, counts them again just to like, you know, just to remind himself almost. Quite a vision. <laughs> God has like a baseball card. <laughs> right. There's a guard box filled with I, I imagine more of a uh, I imagine more of a binder with yeah. the sleeves. Remember those? You get the, the sleeves with the baseball cards. Used to have those. Turn the pages, get your collection, nineteen eighty seven tops, baseball cards. Ah, golden years. Okay, back inside. Back inside. Let's go. Uh, verse number six. And here it gets a little foreboding. Here it gets a drop foreboding. You ready? It says, Now Yosef died, as well as all his brothers and all that generation. We read about that, Joseph's death, right at the end of last week's Torah portion. That was the last thing we read to close out the book of Genesis. That Joseph died and he was buried in a coffin in, in Egypt. That's literally the last words of Genesis. The Torah is again repeating it. Joseph died, but now it's, the Torah is adding. And that whole generation, that whole generation is gone. The old generation, the original generation, they are gone. Let's continue, verse 7. The children of Israel were fruitful and swarmed and increased. The word swarmed has, I don't know, maybe a negative connotation, a little bit, slightly negative, swarmed, teamed. Ah, also little little negative connotation. I don't believe I don't. I, the Torah is not indicating a negative connotation. It means, on the contrary, just a a um, a very rapid multiplica multiplication of this original family that numbered seventy when they came down. So the children of Israel were fruitful and swarmed and increased and became very very strong. Here it says very, very. In the Hebrew, it's good. it says ma'od, ma'od. Like tov is good. Tov, ma'od is very good. Tov, ma'od, ma'od. Very, very good. So they were very, very strong. And the land became filled with them. The land became filled with members of the Jewish family. This directly leads into what we read next. What do you have? Yeah, for sure. And Rashi says uh, uh, in the teens where they would give birth to six children from one womb, but then it says in other words, this is Shemosh Rabbah, from a single pregnancy. Yeah. So Rashi here, the way we have it translated here, Rashi says swarmed, they bore six children at each birth. Yeah. That's a lot of children. Imagine if you have five, you know, twins? Imagine six at the same time. Six 
That's a lot of kids. Each time, six. I don't know what was in the water, but I will tell you that they were having, they, there was a lot, a lot of kids being born. Now, let's continue. Verse 8, and here it gets dark. You ready? Here it gets dark. Bum, bum, bum. Vayaka melech a new king. A new king arose over Egypt who did not know about Joseph. This new king did not know Yosef, did not know the history. Now, Rashi has two interpretations. Either he was ignorant, this new king did not actually know history, or he didn't care about history. You know, when somebody says, I don't know, it means either I don't know. What's the difference between, between uh, ignorance and apathy? I don't know, and I don't care. That's a joke, right? Ignorance and apathy, I don't know, I don't care. All right, I'm sure you're all with me. The point is like this. Vayaka Malachadash, this new king, did not know about Joseph. Rashi says, over here, Rav and Shmuel have a debate. One says he was really new, and the other says his decrees were new. So one says he was really new, maybe he didn't know the history. And the other one says, no, he was the same pharaoh, just he turned a new, a new page. His policies changed. He acted like a new king. As Rashi says, he acted as if he did not know about him. He pretended that he didn't know about Joseph. Of course he knew about Joseph, right? He knew the history, but he pretended. In Yiddish, we would say, he made himself like, unaware, pretended like he didn't know. Oh, Joseph, I don't know Joseph. Who's Joseph? Huh? That, ha that, that directly leads to the next piece, because the only way you can actually harm someone else is when you don't feel a, an empathetic, or you don't feel a connection. Because it's very hard, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's very hard to like care about someone or to feel gratitude towards someone and then hurt them at the same time. So you almost have to create that mental and emotional separation and say, I don't know, I don't care, depersonalize, and then you can, I'm not saying you should, right? Obviously not, don't do this. But that's when the negative, the abuse can happen. All right, let's jump in. So he said to his people, the king, Pharaoh, this new Pharaoh, or this old new Pharaoh, said to his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more numerous. He called them Am B'nai Yisrael, the nation of the children of Israel. He didn't just call them B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel. He called them Am, the nation, or the people of the children of Israel. They're no longer a family. They're a whole, uh, they're a unit. They're, 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 a, um, they're a people. He said, they are more numerous and stronger than we are. Now, this was not true, right? The Jewish family, no matter how many births they had at, at one time, certainly not numerous and certainly not stronger. Well, uh, presumably not numerous and stronger than, than the Egyptians. But, that's, but this is called fear-mongering. This is where he's stoking fear against this, the minority, and he's saying, they're going to take over, and they're going to they're gonna wipe us out. Here we go. Let's take a look at how the fear continues. Verse 10. Get ready. He says to his people, let us deal shrewdly with them. Hava nishak maloi. That's related to her chachma. Chachma nishak maloi. Let's deal wisely or cleverly, shrewdly with these people, with the Jewish people. Lest, right, what's the fear? Lest they increase and a war befall us. And what would happen? They would act as a, what do they call it in battle? A fifth column? Is that, is that the phrase? A fifth column? Yeah? I think a fifth column. There, and what's going to happen? What if we go to war and then the Jews in our own country align with our enemy, right? And they'll join our enemies and wage war against us and depart from the land. They're going to drive us out from the land, from inside. So when you have an external enemy, fine, you deal with it. You deal with it either super effectively or not so, but at least you know what you're dealing with. Pharaoh says to his people, what's going on? The Jewish people are this fifth column or this, you know, this, um, this, an independent people movement in our own land. We're going to go to war. They're going to join the enemy. They're going to destroy us from the inside. Next thing you know, no more Egypt. Obviously, obviously, this type of fear-mongering has been repeated throughout history, and Jews have been the re on the receiving end of this type of rhetoric countless times. 
I mean, how many times were Jews expelled from countries? And oftentimes it was because of the danger of the Jewish people, right? And so-called danger of the Jewish people. And, you know, rhetoric like this is, uh, is oftentimes what, what drives that. This is the first time that we find an organized, on a national level, organized anti-Semitism. I mean, we find other examples of it, other types of instances on a, on a more individual level, but an organized, you know, government-wide um, fear-mongering and, and anti-Semitism and, and anti-Semitic, I don't even like that word necessarily, but like this anti-Jew or harming the Jew type of approach, this is right here. So what happens? So what happens next? What's their plan? What's the strategy of the Egyptians? Here we go. So they appointed over them, over the Jewish people, tax collectors to afflict them with their burdens. Now, tax collectors, since when do you, does someone from the IRS carry a whip? Right? Right? Yeah. That's not, it's not a normal thing. But in this case, the tax collectors weren't just tax collectors. They were task masters. Not tax collectors, but task masters. And he appointed them to afflict them with their burdens. Basically to tell them that you have to work. You have to work. You have to produce for the country. And they were now slowly, slowly subjugated. I, I'm going to finish verse 11 and then go back a little bit because I want to fill in some information. And they built store cities. How ironic, right? Joseph was the one who stored all the food in the years of uh, plenty for the years of famine. This is way after that. This is you know, a generation or two later. Meanwhile... They have the Jews now building store cities. Store cities. Like, yeah, for Pharaoh. Namely, what were the names of these cities? Pitom and, Pith, uh, yeah, Pitom and Ramses. Ramses, of course, is like the name of, a, of, of an ancient Pharaoh and other things, but clearly it was, a, it was an Egyptian name. Yeah, you can bring that to me and I can turn it on for you. Okay? Just to rest? By, not with that? Just to rest? Okay, yeah, you can go. Okay, um, I want to go back a little bit just to explain a little bit of background because it doesn't happen overnight. The way this works is as follows. The first thing that happens is that Pharaoh, look, we know what Pharaoh's agenda is. Pharaoh's agenda, make sure it's not too loud. Pharaoh's agenda is to um, keep the Jewish people in check. Because, I, you know, and I don't even know if it's a legitimate fear. Sorry, it was not a legitimate fear, but I don't even know if he was if he actually was afraid, or if he just wanted to get everybody riled up. That, that's, that itself is a question. Did Pharaoh, here's a question, did Pharaoh, king of Egypt, did he actually fear the Jewish people? Or was all of this just, you know, to get the people to turn against the Jewish people because he wanted them gone, or he wanted them subjugated, or he wanted slave labor, and that's what everyone did back in the day. I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. I don't know if he really believed his own lie. But one thing we know is that the people believed the lie and that they knew that they had to make a plan. And the way it worked was like this. this is, I'm, I'm now giving you the Medrash and the Talmud. I'm kind of weaving the narrative here. First thing they said was, Jews, are you guys loyal to Egypt? I said, yeah. Okay. If you're loyal to Egypt, are you ready to help better the country? Yes. We have a national project. We're building these cities, infrastructure, Will you, are you willing to donate your time for this project? Yes. We're loyal citizens. We're ready. They started working, and the work moved from, from, uh, um, from a volunteer position, from volunteering to more pressing, to more mandatory. And before you know it, it became obligatory and became slavery. This happened over time, happened over a number of years, but slowly, slowly, Pharaoh and the Egyptian, the Egyptian government got the Jews sucked in to the point that they were now forced to do that labor. It became slave labor. It, you know, what, what did they say? Rome wasn't built in a day, nor was Egyptian slavery started overnight. It didn't happen, it didn't happen overnight. I mean, even if you look at the history of, uh, of the Holocaust, Nazi Germany, it also didn't happen overnight. I mean, there were obviously big moments in, in, in the war, Kristallnacht and other, you know, big, you know, turning points. But this, you know, it, it, it happened, it happens gradually, it happens slowly. You know, a leader turns people against another part of the citizenship, turns them slowly. 
And slowly, 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 uh, people become demonized. And then they become, you know, uh, singled out for abuse and harm. And the next thing you know, you got this, this, uh, this state called slavery. I mean, state of, state of reality called, called slavery. And that's what happened. You know, I'm not going through all the, de- all the details of, you know, each stop and each step of, of this journey. But that's more or less what our sages tell us, that this did not happen, you know, just overnight. This happened in a, as a very slow process. Verse 12 tells us something interesting. But as much as they would afflict them, as much as the Egyptians would afflict the Jews, and it was progressively worse and worse, so did they. It's almost like proportionate to how much um, affliction the Jews had. So did they multiply and so did they gain strength. The more the Jews, the more the Egyptians tried to squeeze the Jews, the Jews became more numerous and stronger. And they, the Egyptians, this is a powerful phrase, they were disgusted because of the children of Israel. They were like, they were so, the Jews were so demonized, were so looked at, that it was like, it was, they were disgusted because of the children of Israel. Let's take a look at Rashi. There's some Rashis over here that I want to read over here. Um, There's an interesting Rashi a little earlier. Yeah, yeah where it says, come let us, uh, let us act wisely. Yes. And it says, um, Rosh says, our rabbis interpreted this phrase, let us outsmart God, the Savior of Israel, by, by afflicting the Israelites with water. For he's already sworn that he will not yet bring another right. blood upon the world. Good, 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 good. So this dealing shrewdly, as Mark is pointing out, there's a beautiful Rashi, a beautiful Rashi, a yeah, beautiful Rashi, but a very dark Rashi, where Rashi quotes the Talmud as saying that their plan was, ultimately, which we haven't yet gotten to, the plan was to try to destroy the Jews by water. Why with water? There's actually a few reasons why water, which we'll get to in today's conversation. But one reason for water is because they knew that God had promised not to destroy the world with a flood. So they figured if they harm the Jews with water, you know, and God usually punishes, God usually punishes in the same way that the crime was committed. So if the crime was using water, then they couldn't, they were kind of, you know, escaping punishment because God couldn't, so, so they believed, God couldn't punish them through water. Um, the mistake was, yeah, but they, but they, the Egyptians did not understand that upon the whole world he would not bring a flood, but he would bring it upon one nation. That's in an old Rashi manuscript. In other words, the, God only said he's not going to destroy the whole world with a flood, but one nation... And, and they were destroyed with water. They drowned, not only was the first plague, um, the, well, the, right. the they sea. drowned in the Red Sea. So they absolutely drowned. And why do they call it the Red Sea? Because it turned to blood. I'm kidding. <laughs> the Red Sea is the Red Sea. But yeah, it's actually in Hebrew, it's the Yamsof Re- Sea of Reeds. Anyway, the point is that uh, that was their nishak that was their, their being clever. Um, okay, let's take a look at the disgusted. Why were they disgusted or what was the level of disgust that they had? Rashi says they were disgusted with their lives. In other words, they themselves, they couldn't exist as long as the Jews were in their own country. As long as the Jews were in what they called their country and the Jews were, you know, using their resources, breathing their oxygen, drinking their water, they were, they were disgusted by that. That's, that's the level of, of, of animosity that the Egyptians had for the Jewish people. Others explain, and the Egyptians were disgusted with themselves, and it is easy to understand why. A rabbi who have interpreted to mean that they, the Israelites, were like thorns in their eyes. Vayakutsu either could mean disgusted or it could mean thorns. So one interpretation says that they were disgusted by the Jews. The other opinion says that the Jews were to them like thorns in their eyes, like points of annoyance and an irritation in their lives. So either disgust or irritation. Yeah, why not both? I mean, if, if, they, if they resorted to slavery and, 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 and infanticide, murdering children, seems like probably it was born of both. Anyway, let's keep on moving forward. Um, verse 13. So they tried slavery as a means of subjugation, but the slavery didn't work. Sorry, they tried to afflict the Jewish people with their burdens as a means of keeping them down, but that didn't work. 
they became more numerous and, and, and stronger. So what happens, verse 13, it gets worse. It progressively got worse, worse, worse. Let, let's, let's read the next stage. Verse 13, so the Egyptians enslaved the children of Israel with backbreaking labor. We haven't had that word enslaved yet. This is the first time in the book of Exodus that we find this word of Yavidu, they enslaved. Before we had affliction, burdens, work, right, afflict. Okay, now we have enslaved. And what type of enslavement? Back-breaking labor. Back-breaking labor doesn't only mean physically difficult, but also emotionally complicated and psychologically tormenting. What kind of work is that? Rashi explains, with hard labor that crushes the body and breaks it. But there is another opinion here. I'm just looking down a little bit here, see if I can see it. What is Shmos Rabbah? It's, uh, Shmos Rabbah is a medrash. <coughs> medrash. Because what it says is that the Talmud here offers two meanings uh, for the word beforeh, which yeah. means uh, to crush. Uh, it says it's a contraction, which is derived from the word uh, to crush, and it's a contraction of some small. Befehra, uh, with, sm- with a soft mouth. Soft mouth, yeah. Uh, with glib talk. Interesting. Glib, glib talk would mean what? Like uh, mocking? Yes. Arrogance, like putting putting someone down with words? Yeah. Glib is like... Yeah, I guess, you know, kind of obnoxious. Like obnoxious, yeah. yeah. So that's interesting. But farach could also be a contraction of a perach, which means a soft voice. But it doesn't mean like a gentle tone, like the Egyptians were speaking to the Jews like, so nicely, but more condescending and, and, and that sort of thing. So that's how they originally drawn in. That's, well, they were drawn in with Peperach, right? Yeah, they were drawn in with words. They'll come, you'll be part of the country, you'll be help, help support the country. And then, but there's also another understanding of this, which I, I don't remember where, which verse it's on, but I'll just fill in the, the nature here. Part of what made the, the work so, so backbreaking was not just the fact that they were schlepping you know, heavy stones, but it also signifies a work that is psychologically tormenting as well. And as, as, the, as I think the Talmud and the Medrash point out, they would give people work that wasn't appropriate to them. They would give, and this is the example that's brought, they would give men the work of women, and they would give women the work of men. What does that mean exactly? I've always pictured that. That's what it says. But I've always pictured it as, you know, like the heavy schlepping, you know, they would give the women. And the men, they would give other... Again, at least, uh, not to get stereotypical, but the Talmud does say, and the Medrash does say, that they gave people work that they weren't, let's say, naturally, you know, um, skilled at just to make them schwitz, just to make them, you know, suffer in the work itself. That's the, it was, there was psychological torment here also. It wasn't, just, it wasn't just physical labor. It was psychological as well. Yeah, I don't have you. Translate, a translation says backbreaking. This is with crushing. Yeah. And it says with hard work that crushes the body and breaks it. Says. Yeah, yeah. So. Let's continue verse 14. And the story continues. They embittered their lives. Now, bittered, okay, that's why we have bitter herbs. It literally is, in the Hebrew, it's vayim mararu, like marar. Vayim mararu chayim. They embittered their lives with hard labor, with clay and with bricks and with all kinds of labor in the fields. That means that they were building. They were building, you know? Not every Jew is handy. I know a few Jews that aren't. That's backbreaking labor right there. Boom, you got to build something. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? What am I building? Not happening. I got stuff from Ikea. I remember one time. All right, let me finish the verse. I'll get back to Ikea. All their work that they worked with them with backbreaking labor, in other words, all the work that they gave them was backbreaking. And it wasn't just schlepping the clay and the bricks. And, and other, it, again, there was the psychological part of it also. It was like the, the, the torment. All right, I want to share this story. So... Totally off topic. But I remember first apartment. Lay and I, our first apartment in, in Brooklyn, in Crown Heights. So we got, we went to Ikea. Man, Ikea is another, another topic. Ikea, wow. Ikea is great. Okay, here's the deal. Ikea is like the beginning of that famous book, A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times, I swear. Ikea is like the best. It's like, wow, like... Cool, like trendy stuff, not expensive, but it's also the worst. I mean, you just try to make your way out of Ikea, you can't even find your way out of Ikea. I, they, put, they make that store like an absolute maze. You're weaving through 
dining room, living room, bedroom. I just wanted a lamp. I want to get a lamp and get out of here. You're not going to get a lamp. You're going to take the, to that one 60 minute tour, my friend, until we wear you down. Talk about backbreaking labor. They're going to wear you down to the point that you got, you know, you got a whole like, I don't know, kitchen situation when you just came for, am I wrong, Riva? <laughs> this is called comedy. Don't, don't take it so, so literally. Anyway, the point is like this. You weave through and then sometimes you realize, ah, there's a door, there's a secret door. The door is a trap. You go through the door and next thing you know you're in the chute and boom, that's it. Now they pop you back at the beginning. They're like, oh, you tried to outsmart us? Not happening. I mean, this is what's, I think the last time I went to Ikea was like mid-pandemic, like mid-mid-pandemic, like the summer of 2020. At some point I just wanted, so innocent, just needed, wanted something. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Make yourself comfortable. I know what it was. I wanted a thing next to one of my kids' beds, like a little nightstand situation. They could put a lamp and a book. Not that complicated. Let me go IKEA. What? I because I ordered online because I couldn't. Okay, let me tell you the story. I go to IKEA and I'm telling you the line. At least the Atlanta IKEA. It's got like the checkout thing in the middle of like these the whole the the alleyways with all the. The boxes and the things, ah, it's a whole thing. It's coded, everything, the 29.234, it's like a code. It's like, which one did I violate? What am I doing? Remember they used to give out the pencils and the things. You go there, the line is around, to, all the way to the back of that little warehouse area. The whole thing's a warehouse. That warehouse area, and then makes the loop through the plants. If you know what I'm talking about, plants here. And I get, you go through the plant section, almost back around to the inside, to, the, to, the, to, that, to that whole maze of doom. The point is, I saw that M split. But getting back to Ikea, why am I mentioning Ikea here? How do we get to Ikea? Nope. Hold on. Back breaking work. Back breaking work. That also. That also. Oh, thank you very much. Yes. I, the first thing I ever got from Ikea was this shelving system. It wasn't just a bookcase. It was like a, like a decent size. Like a pretty decent size. And it, the way it worked was... It, at the, at the, the finished product, which looked, I thought looked nice, had a bunch of little squares. It wasn't just like shelves and, you know, like columns and shelves. This had like little boxes, right? So like, it's almost like graph paper, boom, like little boxes. You could put in like, like six books in one and then like a vase in the other and then like a, a thing in the third and it just, you can create all sorts of, you know, cool situation. Oh, now you're getting to it. Or, and this is before, now there are services. You order it, you hire someone, they come, they build it. You know, there, there's like all these hacks now. There's websites. This is like early years. This is like, you know, whatever. Not that, not that long ago. Whatever. If I think about it, how many years ago? This is 2003. So it's almost like 18, 19 years ago. It's, it's, yeah, it's going back a little while. Anyway, I get this thing. And the whole, this massive bookshelf comes in like a very small container, which should have been red flag number one. Should have been red flag number one. But we were excited to get it. I bring it home, I, I open it up, and it's like flat pieces, different size flat pieces, and about a thousand little pegs. The, uh, the Ikea special. You get these little pegs, it's like, and it's like, all right, stand this up, knock in 30 of these pegs, put in half a shelf, Quickly get the other side in and hope, hope all, all works out. I was knocking in pegs for days. And then I built this thing and it's just like, it's just a little bit, it's like leaning tower of Ikea. It's just like a little skewed. I eventually got it to work, don't worry, not that bad. But this just reminds me of Jews in building and just from my own experience, not always the smoothest operation. All right. Yeah, the biggest accomplishment is when you get the Ikea, you get it home, and it works. And yes. you get it right. I you pat yourself on the back. And yes. I still have that one piece. It's over 20 years old, uh. and it's the best piece of furniture I have. What, what, what type of piece is it? It's just like a little linen thing. Oh, nice. Not linen, but like, you know, like a bedroom Yeah, dresser. nice. Cool. And it worked, and I did it all by myself. I, that is and cool. It still works. I think that they, because I've bought, you know, we've, that wasn't the last thing I got from Ikea. I've gotten more. I've built more stuff. Um, I believe they're getting better in, like, kind of like, how, I, but still something like that, man. They re, they, there were no warnings on that. I mean, the warning should be like, okay, you're going to be at this for hours. Mm -hmm. 
Like that should be the warning. Like just, just know what you're getting into. This does not build Psychological itself. Psychological suffering. This, it caused a bit of, and you're newly married. It's like, I can build this. I can't build this. I mean, like, I would love to, but just like, yeah, your husband cannot build this. That's the first thing you know. He cannot build it. I, I built it. But let, let's put it this way, just, just to give you a frame of reference. It didn't make the move to Atlanta. There was no way that was going to make the move. It was like, ah, that thing, you know. It. Okay, back to our story. Back inside. All right. Enough Ikea. Um, let's do this. By the way, if Ikea is listening, you know, we don't mind a podcast sponsor after all this. <laughs> That's not going to happen. Um, oh, but Ikea opened up a restaurant. You know about this, right? Ikea opened up a restaurant. Yeah, the problem is they give you all the raw ingredients and they tell you to cook it yourself. I'm joking. That was a joke. Right? Cooking. I think I've shared that joke before. Um, okay. Moving on. Um, now the king, verse 15, now the king of Egypt, he, you, you see almost every verse or every other verse, the, the conditions get worse. Worse and worse and worse. Here we go. Verse 15, it gets worse. Now the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, the Jewish midwives, one whose name was Shifra and the second whose name was Pua. Shifra and Pua. By the way, who were these midwives? The mother of Moses? According to our sages, Moses' mother, Yocheved, and Moses' sister, Miriam, of Miriam fame. These were the two midwives, Shifra and Pua, um, Yocheved and Miriam. And he said to them, when you deliver the Hebrew women, when you deliver their babies, and you see on the birth stool, examine what's happening. If it is a son, listen to this, if it's a son, you shall put him to death. He enlisted the, Egypt, the, the Jewish midwives to kill the baby boys, the newborn baby boys. But if it is a daughter, she may live. What was the objective here? And, and understand, I, I'm, I know I mentioned this, and I, I like already three or four times, I'm going to do it again. The level of, of progression here is shocking. Step one, I mean, I told you some levels before this. They, they got volunteers and whatever. But then there were tax collectors, affliction with burdens, building store cities. Then we have backbreaking labor, hard labor, clay and bricks. Now we have infanticide, which is a fancy word for saying killing, killing children and babies. Infanticide. If it's a son that's born, if it's a boy, boom, take him out, God forbid. And daughter, she may live. What happened in reality? That was what Pharaoh said to the midwives. The midwives, however, they feared God. So they did not do as the king of Egypt had spoken to them. But they enabled the boys to live. They enabled the boys to live. Or they allowed the boys to live. I need to explain this. A few things. Number one, what's this about fearing God? They feared God. Torah is telling us something powerful, and that is, who do you fear more? Do you feel, do you fear, sorry, who do you fear more? Do you fear mortal beings, or do you fear God? So God says, don't. The mortal king says, do. Who do you follow? Who do you follow? Reminds me of the story of the previous Rebbe who was arrested in 1927 by the Soviets for counter-revolutionary activities, i.e. teaching Torah under the communist regime. And they wanted him to talk because he had created an underground network, hundreds if not thousands of points of contact around, around the former Soviet Union of a whole network of Judaism and, and teachers and, and rabbis and a whole thing. They wanted him to talk, and he, he refused to reveal any information. So one of the interrogators pulls out a pistol and says to him, this toy, this little toy, he was speaking like, you know, this little toy has made many people speak. And the Rebbe said to him, this toy only works on those who have multiple gods and one world. I have one god and two worlds. In other words, what he was saying to this, to this fellow is, look, if somebody believes that this is all they've got, this is it, the here and now. 
and they, you know, sure, God, sure, but there's a king or there, there's a government or whatever it is, then you might sell out to, to preserve yourself. So if the midwives, getting back to the midwives right away, if the midwives, if they didn't have a higher faith and a, and a fear of God, if they just cared about their own you know, self-preservation, that's it, and that maybe they would have followed what Pharaoh said to kill the boys. But that wasn't the only reality in their lives. They feared God, and they feared God more than they feared the king. And they knew that no matter what the king would do to them, they still had a connection with God, and, and they would be okay ultimately, whether in this world or in the next world. And, and it was in this world that they were okay also. But the point is that um, they, 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 their fear of God allowed them to transcend their fear of mortal beings. This is a very important lesson in life. Right? What do we fear in life? And fearing God doesn't mean like you're afraid of God, but it means a reverence for God. What do we revere? What do we bow toward? Is it the physical stuff and the physical kings and, 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 and stuff that goes on here? Or is it the Abisha? Or is it the Almighty? It's a question. It's an open, it's an open question that we all think about, that we all should think about. Um, regarding the specifics, they wanted the boys gone. They figured if the boys were gone, slowly, slowly, the Jews would die out. I mean, I don't know if they knew that Jewish identity, although then I don't know how, if there was something called Jewish identity, you know, because it was before Sinai, whatever. The, the irony is that it's matrilineal anyway. It gets by the mom. So, But I think they were just trying to, trying to destroy the, um, uh, just trying to cut the numbers of Jews. They figured if they take out the boys, that's it. Eventually the Jews would be gone. And as the Rebbe points out, Rashi points out, no, why, why boys? Oh, why, oh, okay, so hold on. Let, we'll get to Rashi in a second. I just want to mention about the girls. The Rebbe points out that even the girls, there was a decree. Not to kill them, but to educate them and to inculcate them in the way, in Egyptian ways and with Egyptian culture. That's why, if you look at the decree, and we're going to get to Rashi in a second because it sounds like we got something good over there. That's why in the decree, it says, if it's a son, you shall put him to death. But if it's a daughter, she may live. That word may is too passive. She may live? No. In the Hebrew, it's v'chaya. She shall live. Which means that you shall enliven her. You shall make her live. And that means make her live in the Egyptian culture, in the Egyptian way of life. So the boys, it was a physical um, decree. The girls had a spiritual decree against them. The boys, the physical decree was... God forbid, eliminate, physically eliminate the boys. The girls was eliminate their Yiddishkeit, eliminate their connection, eliminate their identity. Inculcate them in the ways of the Egyptians, which is worse. I mean, I don't know how you can get, say that anything is worse than physical genocide or infanticide. I, I don't think you say worse. But, I mean, the spiritual thing is, is also pretty, pretty terrible. Um, and that is the threat of, of losing one's identity. Let's, let's uh, toggle Rashi on for a sec and see what's going on over here about the boys. Um, I mentioned before Shifra and Pua, the two midwives, Yocheved and Miriam. Why was she called Shifra? Shifra means beautiful because she beautified the newborn infant. She cleaned up the baby. She, you know, she was the midwife that delivered the baby, so she made them nice. And why was Miriam called Pua? Because she cried mm, and talked and cooed. That's what it is. Talked and cooed to the noble infant in the manner of women who soothe the crying infant. She soothed the baby. So her mom, Yochever, was the one who, who was the, the nurse. And she was, I mean, also a nurse, but she was the, um, the one to kind of make the babies, to soothe them after birth. Okay, let's take a look at if it is son. Ah, here you have it. There you go. Rashi says, Pharaoh cared only about the males. Why? Because his astrologers told him that a son was destined to be born who would save them. That's why. The astrologers, the Egyptian astrologers, the fortune tellers had seen that there was going to be a boy redeemer born to them. They were right. They were absolutely right. And it was at this time also. It was at this time that, they, that this was brewing. This was happening, right? This is around shortly before the birth of Moses. Which, by the way, I should point out, that means that the narrative has jumped at least 210 years. 
Um, no, sorry, the narrative has jumped 210 years. When, from when the Jews came down, when the Jewish family came down to Egypt until the end, the, until the Exodus was 210 years. So we've now, we're, this is the end. This is like a year or two before the Exodus. When things got really, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. What am I saying? Time out. Hold on, I'm mixing myself up. Moses is 80 years old at the time of the Exodus. So 210 minus 80 is 130. So we're now about 120, between 125 and 130 years into the Egyptian experience. Shortly before the birth of Moses, and then Moses will live till 80, and then, well, he'll live beyond, but when he's 80, that's when the Exodus will happen. I, I hope I'm not confusing anybody, as I did myself, with this timeline. The point is that the Torah briefly describes the, 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 the evolution of slavery, and now we're getting to where it gets really bad, and this is when, right shortly before the birth of Moses, who would eventually save them. So the Egyptian astrologers saw this, and they said, they told us to Pharaoh, and so Pharaoh said, if that's the case, then all the boys that are born, let him be born, let them be born. We're not going to abort all the babies. Let them be, let, because they saw that a Jewish savior would be born. So let him be born, and then kill all the boys right after, right, right after childbirth. So that they, they would be born, and then, then be killed. But, but they enable the boys to live. Rashi says, they provide a water and food for them. Actually, <clears throat> um, where is this? Some, I can't find the note on this. Long story. There's a point where it says, uh, allow the boys to live. Um, it's, they actually nurture, what was it? It actually nurtures them. Is what mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, not just birth. But after. After birth, yeah. yeah. After birth. After birth. They gave them food and water, and they helped also, on some, on some levels, hide them sometimes. Um, yeah. At, right? What, what, what is Sota? It's a Tamar. Yeah, it says the verse could have said that they did not put the infant boys to death. Right. Why say that they made them live? Right. Since it goes so far as to say that they kept them alive. Right. So that they means... They took active steps to sustain them. They actively sustained the babies. Archaim, I have here in this Rashi, um, it's in parentheses because Archaim is not Rashi. It's another commentary that lived 400 years after Rashi. Archaim asked why the midwives did not do a prior to Pharaoh's decree. Right. And the answer is obviously they did do it before. They continue. He answered the Torah means that despite Pharaoh's decree, the midwives continue their previous practice that is supplying needy children with nourishment. He suggests further that they particularly sustain the male children lest one die and they be suspected of being responsible for his death. So they wanted to make sure that no baby, now that Pharaoh said the boys should, should, should be put to death, they wanted to make sure that no boys, I'm sure girls also, that no children should die on their watch. They were even more um, careful and vigilant to make sure that no one lost their lives. All right, so that's reading number one, and you see quickly in this reading how things are, are, are slipping in a negative way. Let's actually, let's, let's jump into reading number two and read a few more verses, because it continues the narrative, directly continues the narrative. All right, and I know we're at the time, but just give me another three minutes or so, maybe even less, two minutes. So the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, summoned the midwives, because the boys are still living. So he summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing? Do you have enabled the boys to live? What's going on? The midwives said to Pharaoh, it's not, our, it's not our fault because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are skilled as midwives. They themselves are their own midwives. They don't even need us. When the midwife has not yet come to them, they've already given birth. And Rashi points out, Chayyaseinah. Chayes, hey, now they're like chayes, either as midwives or chayes could also mean like animals. You ever, see a, you ever see an animal have a midwife? Yeah. Animals don't have midwives. Why not? They give birth. That's it. They figured it out. They cracked the code. Yeah. They cracked the code. In the field, they give birth. So, so the midwives, there's two opinions. The mid, Pharaoh says, you guys are in trouble. The boys are alive. And the midwife said, either. They, they, either they are like midwives or they're like animals. Either way, it's the same thing. It's not our fault. Don't blame us. The Jewish women are just having babies and they're doing it on, on their own. Basically, they're recovering, right? For the, they're recovering for themselves so they shouldn't get in trouble. 
and uh, saying that the you know it's the, the Jewish women are doing their own thing. So it's it's. It, by the time we get there, we hear the call that someone's in, in labor and someone's giving birth. We get there, they've already had a baby, and, you know, it's too late for us to do anything. Something like that. God benefited the midwives. God blessed. Vayitav means good. God made it good for the midwives. It, personally, God blessed the midwives, rewarded them for their efforts to keep the, Jew, to keep the boys alive. They, they were lying, just to be clear here. They were lying to Pharaoh. Of course they helped the Jews. We just read. They gave the kids, they gave the boys, they, they gave them nourishment, they, they took care of them. But they told Pharaoh that it wasn't them. That was a story. In fact, they had taken care of the babies, just to be clear. So God benefited the midwives. Those that, that didn't listen to Pharaoh, the, the midwives, God blessed them. And the people multiplied and became very strong. We're gonna, I'm going to do two more verses, but then we're going to start again tomorrow from this because I have more insights, but we don't have time for that today. Now, now, it took place when the midwives feared God that he made houses for them. God hooked them up with houses. All right, so again, God blesses them. And Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, all his people. Now it's, the decree is worse. It's not only the Jewish boys. Now it's all the boys. Because the astrologers said, uh-oh, we see that it's imminent. Today... The, today the Savior is going to be born, but we don't know if he's going to come from an Egyptian family or a Jewish family. Because Moses grew up in the palace, in Pharaoh's own palace, in an Egyptian home. So therefore, the decree gets worse, and now he hits all his people. Pharaoh commanded all his people. All his people means not, not, not just the Jewish people. All his people means the Egyptians. Saying on that one day that the astrologers had predicted... Every son who was born, every son who was born, you shall cast into the Nile. Because he saw that the downfall of the Redeemer of the Jewish people would be through water. When Moses hit the rock, right, produced water. He says, every son shall be born, who was born today shall be cast into the Nile, and every daughter you shall allow to live once again, allow to live in the ways of Egypt. All right, we have so much to share on these last few verses. Verse 20, 21, and 22. We're going to start with that tomorrow. But I wanted to just finish this narrative because, uh, I mean, at least just so for our own benefit for today, so that we have at least the, this part of the story in. Because tomorrow, the main focus, after we get through those uh, the first few verses, is going to be the birth of Moses. That's how Exodus chapter 2 begins, the birth of Moses. Okay, so today, what do we do? Today, we read about the condition of the, the, the condition precipitating, well, the conditions that precipitated and the onset and the evolution of Egyptian slavery. So a few things, a few highlights that I want to just kind of reinforce and conclude with. Number one, the book is called Shemot. In Hebrew, the book is called Shemos or Shemot, which means names. The message is, how do we survive Egypt and how, do we, how have we survived all of the Egypts throughout our history? It's by maintaining our identity whether it's a name, whether it's the food that we eat, whether it's the clothes that we wear, whether it's the language that we speak, whether it's the books that we read. It's about maintaining our identity in all of the above, any of the above, and all of the above. So on that note, a quick plug, join us tonight as we talk about kosher. What we eat is important. We have a, a food Instagram food blogger with us tonight who is going to be doing a live demo and tasting. Women only. I know, we're out. I'll ask later to bring home some food. That's, that's me. I got, I, got, I, got some, I got some inside connections here. Um, but yeah, so that's tonight. The soul of, it's called Soul Food. The class is called Soul Food. Leah will be teaching the class. And we have Sarah G is going to be doing the, um, the presentation on the food. So that is tonight starting at 7.30 p.m. RCS right here in Jeff's place. But really the core idea that I wanted to close out with is this idea of identity of just knowing who we are, but not only knowing who we are, being proud of who we are, and not feeling like we have to hide it. Because if you're starting to hide your identity, then already, you know, how long is that going to last, right? How long can we really hide and then still be proud? If we're hiding, then we're not proud and, and whatever. So the point is to be proud in whatever way, whether it's, again, what we wear, what we eat, what we study, how we think, our names. Use a Jewish name once in a while. It's fun. It's good. It also, it's a good conversation starter, right? 
Don't call me. Yeah. Facebook uh, status post. You know, my Hebrew name is. Maybe it'll be a trend that will catch on that we started right here. Who knows? Maybe it'll go viral. Hi, my... I was six on... I was thinking of changing my handle here on Zoom, Yogi Da. I'm thinking of changing it for the new year so I could do my Hebrew name. See that? See that? That's not about. Remind me your Hebrew name. Dina with an I. Beautiful. Beautiful. Dina. See that? It has such a beautiful sound. It's such a. It rolls off the tongue. See that? I'm going to do it for the new year. I love it. I love it. 2022, the year of the Hebrew name. You see that? All right. And then another message that I want to kind of, uh, right before we close out, the other message is about not getting sucked into things. Because all descents start with one step. The Jews, they, uh, they were volunteering. And then before you know it, one thing led to another, and, and they're slaves. So what's the message? Don't volunteer. No, the message is that we have to be careful. Because every step leads to another step, and every action has a consequence. And we just have to be careful that we, we're, not, we're not putting ourselves, we're not leaning toward a path that eventually just goes south. We have to always think a little bit ahead. It says in Pirkei Avot, Ethics of the Fathers, Ezeu Chacham, it's a rhetorical question and answer. It says, who is wise? Haroa etanolad, one who sees what will be born. What that means is not physically, it means what, who sees what this, what this action will lead to. Sees the consequences. So it's good to see a little bit, a little bit further. And it's also good, final lesson, it's also good to not feel like we have to kowtow. Kowtow? To the pharaohs. Unless what the pharaoh is saying makes sense. Otherwise, pharaoh. You know what we say to pharaoh? Go jump in a Nile. Or something. Pharaoh in any way is in denial. Oof. Ay. Ay. I self oyed there. Okay, so that's it for today. Tomorrow we continue. We get into the origin story of Moses. But before that, we also get into wrapping up the story about the midwives, which is also part of the fa- story because the family of Moses. How was there not a rebellion? From the Jews to the Egyptians. When the Egyptians... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. On that decree. So, yeah, Mark is asking a good question. When, when Pharaoh says to all Egyptians, all boys have to go into the Nile, how did he get buy-in? It could be, I don't know, I'm speculating. We have to look up the original sources to see if it's discussed. But I have a speculation that may or may not resonate with anybody. But could we not fathom a situation where a, like a dictator who has like a really strong grip could somehow convince his people that the savior of this hated people might come from one of us, so we all have to bite the bullet? Is it possible to conceive of such a thing? I think so. I mean, horrifically conceive of such a thing. Is it possible that there could be buy-in to even, to even murder one's own baby to save the nation? Well, in China, that happened with girls. Yeah. I, I, I'm saying... I, I'm only allowing one birth. Only allowing one, right. And so if it so if it was a girl, they would, right, they would kill. So could we see a situation where the government would have such a control over people that it could even lead to that? I could see it. It's horrific. I don't even want to be able to see it. Like, I would rather that I couldn't understand it. Unfortunately, I, I think I could find a, 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 a space where, that, where I could see that, how that happens. It's horrific. I wish I did. Rabbi? Yeah. Rabbi? So you mentioned we should look into the future, but... That's not prophecy, right? No, 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 no. No, what it oh. means is, what it means is to realize that if I, like, maybe I didn't, I didn't say practical enough. Like, I, I, I should know that if I compromise on this, even if it's a little, it's like overcoming folly, right? It's like our Sunday morning. If I compromise on this, then what's going to happen? I'm going to get used to this compromise, and then tomorrow I'm going to maybe compromise a little bit more, and a little bit more, a little bit more. Until of your actions, That's what I mean, right. Not actually to see the future like crystal ball future, but to recognize that if I'm compromising here, it's like in any relationship, right? If I'm going to, like, you know, do this, that's, like, not so kosher or whatever, then, like, what's the next thing? And, like, where's that going to go? What's... 
what's, what message am I sending and what, what precedent am I setting? And, you know, just where, where am I headed? Like, where, where's, where, where's the arrow pointing? And so the, the, the idea here is to, to, not, to not get that ball started. And, and, and pursuant to that, there was, and I mentioned this many times before, there was one tribe, one family, one tribe amongst the Jewish people that never got sucked into it. And that was the tribe of Levi. The tribe of, Mark, your people. Your people never come. The Levites never, never got sucked into it because they were always considered to be the priests. And as we know already from prior conversations in Torah, the Egyptians honored their own priests. And so they also honored the concept, the position of the priests. And so the Jewish priests... And, and what made them priests? Because they never opted into the slavery. They were like, no, we have to, we're teaching or we're learning or whatever it was. Or we're, and there was no temple. There was no tabernacle then. Whatever they were doing, but they weren't, they, they, didn't, they didn't jump into that labor force, the Egyptian labor force. They just didn't jump into it. And so they never got sucked into it, which is why, and I've said this many times, that's why according to the Talmud, according to Rashi even many places, that's why Moses and Aaron were able to freely walk in and out of the palace and they weren't, like with quotas in the field, making bricks because they were not subject to the, sub, to the servitude. So the question in life is, and this leads to another lesson is, so who do we want to be? Do we want to be the slaves in general? Like, do we want to be the slaves or do we want to be the priests? And again, what does that mean practically? I don't know. We have to use our own imagination and everyone's life looks a little bit different. I'm not saying don't go to work, but the question is, you know, are we subjugating ourselves? Are we enslaving ourselves? Or are we maintaining our own freedom, our own dignity? That's the question. Shabbos gives us that gift. Shabbos, if nothing else, if nothing else, forget about God for a second. Sorry. But even if it's not about God, Shabbos, if nothing else, tells us is a declaration, I am not all about work. I, can, I, ha- I have the ability to take 25 hours and disconnect. It's for oneself. It's just to remind oneself that we're not... We haven't become the hammer. We haven't become the computer. We haven't become the smartphone. We're not, we're not mashubed. We're not subjugated. We're not enslaved to technology. We're not enslaved to the labor. We can, we can step out. Anyway, lot, so much to talk about, and it's, it's late. So I'll let you guys go. Don't forget tonight, RCS. If you're not yet signed up, jump in. You can do it. We'll make it happen. And we'll see you tomorrow. Same bad time, same bad channel. All right. Have a wonderful day. Joy, Donna, Sarah, Olia, pleasure. See you guys soon. Pleasure. And Mark. (laughs) Sorry.